0: The mind, or you could say the heart, while we're on retreat. And uh, I'm guessing for you, as it often is for me, there's moments where that, what that word points to, seems clear, like, oh, that's the mind. And there are other times when. It's not clear at all what we mean by the mind, what is the mind. So there's a easy way, (laughs) this is the mind. You know, whatever this is, our experience is the mind. Because whatever there is of body and sound and all the other aspects of experience, of course it's being known, by what? It's being known by the mind. And fortunately, we don't have to understand the mind in some metaphysical way. That understanding isn't what leads to liberation. And of course, we could have a lot of arguments about my particular theory of the mind versus your particular theory of the mind or heart. But we just need to understand this experience, which is already the way that it is. It's already here and now. It's such a relief. It doesn't require a philosophy book or even a teacher. Although, as we'll see tonight, at least from my experience, looking at the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness of the mind, have been really useful if we hold it the right way so that we use the instructions to illuminate this present moment experience of mine as opposed to using the Buddha's instructions to figure out conceptually what the mind is so we can like have a prize. conceptual understanding of the mind. And I can compare it to other understandings of the mind and get into debates. One of my first Vipassana teachers, Shinzen Young, some of you may have heard of him. He used to come out to Minnesota regularly and lead retreats back in the 80s and early 90s. And uh, he had a phrase he liked to use a lot which is subtle is significant. It's useful. And just in general in our experience to always be interested in not just, not assuming that the biggest thing in our experience, the loudest thing is significant, but also interested in what else is there, what might be there that's more subtle. And many of you probably have heard the, where there's a Sufi mystic kind of a wise fool character in Sufism, Nasruddin, from way back when. And there's a story about him searching for his lost jewel under the street light. Some of you heard this, I'm sure. And searching and searching. Eventually some of his lovely neighbors come out to help and they're all searching. And eventually one of the neighbors says, so exactly where did you lose this jewel? And he points off into the woods and they're kind of astounded, like, why are we looking here? He says, well, there's a really good light here. (laughs) And so often, you know, when we're suffering, when we're confused, our habit is to look into the external world, what we see, and, and basically not even what we see, but what we think. We look, even though thinking is an internal process, our thinking is about what we assume is external, like my thoughts about you, and who's to blame for my suffering, who's to blame for the stress I feel, what IMS could be doing better, or why I love IMS. So we tend to externalize the causes for happiness and suffering. And uh, because it's the habit, you know, as a living, breathing creature, our sense gates, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the tongue, rather, touch, hearing, and then our thinking is oriented to what we call the external world. Bhante Ratana talks about, uh, I don't know if, oh, if it's an ancient fable or not, but in his book about the Eightfold Path, He talks about uh, a divine being hiding the greatest treasure in the universe in a place where nobody would ever look. You know, and we imagine some cave in the mountains or somewhere deep in the ocean. But as you probably can guess, where it's hidden is in the heart, in the mind, right? Because we're not inclined to be interested in the mind, in the heart. I really have learned a lot from some of the Thai forest teachers, both Western and some of the Asian teachers, some of the Thai teachers in that tradition. And they have a way, like here, and sort of this style of practice influenced a lot by the Burmese Sayadas, we'd often talk about an object being known. Like in any moment of experience, there's an object and it's being known. And in any moment of our experience past present future it's always going to be that an object being known an object being known this is being known this is being known this is being known and they just have a slightly different spin so one way it's talked about there's the heart or the mind and there there's the activity of the mind activity of the heart i like this way as well just understand that in any moment There's this knowing heart, sometimes they call it the one who knows, the heart that knows. And there's the activity that's being known, the activity of body and mind that's being known. And then the way they talk about the practice is, all we have to do, it's simple but not easy, all we have to do is be able to recognize the heart and the activity of the heart, the object, And the knowing of the object to really understand how they're distinct or different and happening together to not be confused to not misperceive or misunderstand the knowing and the object being known or the heart and the activity of the heart so and and of course again that's all here right whatever that heart is and whatever the activity of the heart is or whatever knowing is and the objects that are being known it has to be this what else could it be so it's just clarifying this experience object being known objects being known heart and activity of the heart Doesn't that make it feel a slightly more doable <laughs> what we are doing here on retreat? It's like the laboratory right here, it's all set up, you know, for our investigation. And we're just, you know, in terms of whatever this is, all we have to do initially, I mean, ultimately, is just understand, just dividing it or just seeing it in these two ways. Sometimes the heart, several times in the polycanon, Canon, that heart, that knowing is, that aspect of the mind is talked about as a mirror, right? that. So there's the mirror, and then there's what the mirror is reflecting. What the mirror is reflecting is the activity of the heart or the objects that are being known, but there's also the mirror. Another image that's used more, you know, in, in our sort of Western Buddhist circles, sometimes is space, the space of the mind, the space of the heart or the space of awareness. So we have some, of course, imperfect metaphors that point to, like there's the space of the mind, the heart, and then there's what's happening in the space. Here's what Ajahn Chah says about this. This is one of my favorite Ajahn Chah quotes. He was one of those Thai forest masters and has had quite an influence on the Dharma scene here in the West, and he did visit IMS once. Um, I'm not sure exactly when that was, late 70s, early 80s. Within itself, the mind is already peaceful That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things, forgets itself, right? We, get, we forget ourselves in the activity of the mind, right? We get attached, identified, caught up in the activity of emotion, the activity of our mental content. We believe it. He goes on and says, I'll just repeat that last sentence. He said, the untrained mind gets lost and follows these things, forgets itself, And then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. And just this is the aim of all this practice we put ourselves through. So that's a beautiful pointing to the liberation. So there's still activity and there's a heart that remains undisturbed. Intimate with the activity, not afraid of the activity, but not confused by the activity of the mind. Or there's knowing and there are objects being known. But there's a realization that the knowing isn't disturbed, doesn't have a problem with the objects that are being known. So how do we realize this freedom, this non-reactivity? And that's the purpose of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness of mind, which are embedded in this famous discourse you probably have heard called the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. People sometimes translate that as four establishments of mindfulness, like where we should establish that study continuous presence, mindful awareness. And Ajantani Saro translated as the four frames of reference, which is, brings out a different flavor. And right at the beginning of this discourse, the Buddha sort of gives everyone a little pep talk. He says, this is the direct path, right? So cultivating mindfulness of the body, that's the first foundation, Feeling, so the pleasantness, unpleasantness or neutrality of experience. Mind, that's a third. And sometimes translated as mental objects. Um, But it's really the maps. This fourth foundation is really the maps the Buddha uses to help us illuminate our experience. So this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four frames of reference. Which four? And then he goes on to describe or give instruction for mindfulness of the body, and mindfulness of feeling tone, and mindfulness of the mind. And then this last c- category, usually people don't even bother to translate it, because. None of the translations are quite right. and So the Pali is mindfulness of dhammas. But it's really when you look at what he says there, he's giving some maps and he's saying, connect or open to your experience in light of this map, like the five hindrances that I think Deborah spoke of, or the map of the seven factors of awakening, like the wholesome qualities of mind or the unwholesome qualities of mind. So we're looking at experience, with that map in mind, seeing experience in terms of the hindrances, are they there, are they not there? So it's very similar to mindfulness of the mind, but using a particular map. So that's a a powerful invitation. This is the direct way for the overcoming of suffering, namely cultivating mindfulness in these ways. And the other thing that's said in the tradition is that any way will do. You don't need to do all of the meditation. So there are 13 meditations in the Satipatthana Sutta. There's six around mindfulness of the body and then mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of the mind. And then in mindfulness of dhammas there are five. You don't need to know that but maybe someday you'll dig into the discourse. It's really the collection of teachings on mindfulness, um, one of the most succinct set of teachings on mindfulness that you're gonna find from the Buddha. But what's important is that any one place we dig in will lead, and the, the image the Buddha uses, it's sort of, I love these earthy images. So he says, imagine there's a pile of dust in the middle of an intersection, you know, two roads intersecting, And in the middle, there's a pile of dust. He says it doesn't matter if a chariot comes from the east or from the south or from the north or from the west, that pile of dust is gonna be dispersed. And so the pile of dust is like all of the tendencies towards suffering, greed, anger, and delusion, all the ways the heart gets defiled or gets corrupted, gets confused doesn't matter which one we cultivate. And all the way through, with all these 13 meditations, and we'll be looking more specifically at the mindfulness of the mind tonight, the Buddha's teaching two things, what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. And this is useful to know because, you know, if, if, we, don't, if we don't have a sense of what's relevant or what's predominant or if we don't have a sense of how to understand, how to connect with the present moment, we can spend a lot of time thinking we're mindful, but not really learning very much. In the tradition, there's a big deal about those who awaken because of the benefit of having teachings from a wise, already awake person like we can't be Buddhas because we still have the teachings of a Buddha. And by definition, a Buddha is someone who awakens without those teachings. And they also have the kind of personality that allows them to articulate their awakening so that it's helpful for other people. So it's sort of a technical title. If you have full awakening, uproot, greed, anger, delusion from your mind without any help from good teachings, and you have a personality, this sort of personality skills that allow you to talk about what just happened to you in a way that really helps other people do the same thing, and then you get to be a Buddha. (laughs) So we have to be satisfied with full awakening but not being a Buddha. (laughs) And of course, you can fully awake and help other people, right? So here, the Buddha is telling us what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. So now we're just going to look at this third foundation, mindfulness of the mind, and how by learning better and better what to pay attention to and how we pay attention, we're going to do two things. We're going to purify the mind, and we're going to purify how the mind understands the activity of mind. So we're gonna purify the activity of the mind and we're gonna purify the mind in a sense as well. You could say purify the obscurations of the mind or their view. And the way the Buddha sets this up, this really speaks to the how Um, Even though in some styles of practice, like concentration practice, samatha practice, we'll have a very exclusive attention or exclusive object for our attention. Like we'll just come back to the tip of the nostrils and basically we're not interested in anything else but that experience. Or like when you do loving kindness, we're really giving ourselves to the repetition of the phrase, the meaning of the words, the image of the person or the group of people that we're radiating that love toward. And, and we're not allowing the mind to go other places right now because this is the object. But in Vipassana practice, insight meditation, even though we will have an object that's being known that awareness, like by definition, insight meditation, we have to see the relatedness. This is why we emphasize so much the continuity of awareness. So we begin to discern the lawfulness, like how the moment is unfolding, what's getting set in motion. When there's irritation in the mind and there's identification with the irritation. We take it personally. Then there's a strong impulse to act in this way. And when I act in that way, there's a strong tendency for the world to react to me in that way, in this other way, right? And on and on like that. So when we're doing vipassana practice, we may frame the moment by seeing this is being known that part of what's being known is how everything else relates to this being known. And this, in, the, in this discourse, the Buddha says something like, we should know things internally and externally and both internally and externally. We should know anger internally and externally and both internally and externally, or any quality of mind, metta, loving kindness, internally, externally. And Ajantanisaro, a Western Buddhist monk and a, a great uh, translator and teacher, um, he says from his understanding of the suttas and Pali that actually what the Buddha means here is directly and indirectly. So for example, when we see anger in the mind, we discern there is anger being known. This is anger being known. Then right there in that experience, will notice the unpleasantness that's there with the anger, right? Isn't that often? Well, that's the feeling tone. That's a different foundation. So there's the mental quality of anger and there's the feeling tone of unpleasantness and you might notice the body being tight. And even that fourth foundation, remember that's the maps that the Buddha gives us. So one of the maps I mentioned is like seeing the hindrances. And basically the map, what the Buddha says is, okay, when there are hindrances like anger, you want to see when it's there, you want to see how it arises, you want to see how it passes away, how it can be abandoned, and you want to see how once it's been abandoned, how it stays away. Like what is present that keeps the anger from re-emerging. So all four of those foundations, in one moment of seeing anger, you may be seeing anger directly, and then indirectly, you're noticing that the body's tight, you're noticing that the feeling tone is unpleasant, and you're noticing like what supports the abandoning of the anger, what supports the arising of the anger, what supports it being prevented from coming back once it's gone away now that means the mind is really steady and it has clearly framed its awareness around this experience of anger and so it sees how everything else in the realm of our experience interrelates with that experience of anger and then we become wise wiser right because now in the mind stream is having understood what we didn't understand before about anger. And now we have a different, as the mind stream continues, there's some wisdom there that wasn't there previously. Like we know it hurts, for example. So the next time we're getting close to becoming angry, the memory that it feels unpleasant is going to be really informative. You sure you want to go there? (laughs) Right? I mean, that actually arises in our mind. And, and uh, remembering the body experiences so sometimes or often even how we feel in the body gives us a little red flag before one of the unwholesome qualities of mind gets a full head of steam, right? We start noticing. This is one of the advantages of being physically relaxed is that when a defilement, uh, mental torment comes in, like greed or aversion, restlessness, dullness, doubt, when one of those come in, we might notice at first that the body's getting a little contracted. And that might, okay, honey, how's the mind? What's happening in the mind? What, what can be known in the mind? What qualities are present? Wakes us up. So I like this um, because it's always felt intuitively right for me that awareness should be inclusive. And how to to bring together how so much of of our instructions are asking us to direct the attention or to recognize particular aspects of experience. But just because we're framing the awareness around an experience, doesn't mean we're excluding everything else that's arising in the present moment. Like in the same way, you can look at me right now, but you can peripherally be aware visually of all the other visual impressions that are contacting the eye, right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can even hear my voice and hear maybe the subtle sound of the ventilation system or I can feel the sits bones making contact, but I can feel that very distinct feeling of pressure at the sits bones and feel the whole body at the same time. So let's get into this particular section where the Buddha talks about mindfulness of mind. So we've gotten a little sense that he's pointing to this inclusive awareness, but we're gonna use the specific recognition of different qualities of mind to help us know the whole thing, right? So by knowing, being able to recognize the difference between anger and loving kindness and greed, and generosity, and renunciation, and clarity, and delusion. You know, to be able to notice the difference, it's really helpful that, oh yeah, this is sloth and torpor, so being able to connect. But then we use that recognition to connect with this. And remember, we can tell right now, we can confirm this right now, that when we connect with the present moment, this, experience of body and mind right now, Is it, it's just one thing, right? So, the sort of gateway or the object that we use to, in a sense, open the door to the present moment, that might be specific, looking at the attitude in the mind right now, or looking at some sensation in the body right now. But it can be a gateway into a clear and relaxed, continuous presence, with the way it is, with the present moment. And the other thing that in the sutta you'll see in this discourse, the Buddha is emphasizing the wholesome qualities just as much as the unwholesome. We often seem to talk more about the unwholesome, which is, I think, one of the reasons in the insight meditation tradition, you know, here at IMS and Spirit Rock and other places sometime maybe 10, 20 years ago, um, we just started teaching more and more, or those of us who were practicing back there, started to practice more and more loving-kindness practices, so that we could become just as fluent recognizing the wholesome qualities as we need to get you know, the fluency we need to have recognizing the unwholesome qualities of mind. and how, this is the Buddha, and how does a practitioner remain uh, aware of the mind in and of itself? How, does the, how do we as practitioners know the mind in and of itself? And he says, when the mind has passion, sense, desire, wanting mind, a practitioner discerns that the mind has passion. When the mind is without passion, one discerns that the mind is without passion. Right, no judgment, no reactivity, just a clear recognition. That's the R, remember Kamala mentioned RAIN, that acronym, R-A-I-N. So we're recognizing there is passion, there is the wanting mind. Here it is, it's like this. Can this be okay? Here's the mind that doesn't want, it's content, it's simple, it's okay with things as they are. It's like this, can that be okay? And then he says, when the mind has aversion, one discerns that the mind has aversion. When the mind is without aversion, one discerns that the mind is without aversion. And then with delusion, when the mind has delusion, one discerns that the mind has delusion. When the mind is without delusion, one discerns that the mind is without delusion. So one of the things that's really good to do with Dharma, friends, is to talk about what our experience is, a mind with anger and a mind without anger, a mind with greed and a mind without greed, a mind with delusion and a mind without delusion. It's better than talking about the movies, it's better than talking about politics. I mean, that's really what a Dharma talk is or when we have our small circles or our one-on-one meetings, we're basically swapping stories about what we see. And then there was anger, and then there was loving kindness. And it was like this, right? That's what we do. And it's fascinating. It's like we don't have to try to be interested. We are naturally interested in the mind. It's related to this word ardency, I think, which means we're really motivated, naturally motivated. As long as we're not overwhelmed by life, we will be naturally motivated to understand the mind and how we get led into cycles of suffering, stress, and how we get out of those cycles of stress. Because we're motivated, we care about this life. And that's just built into the system. We don't care about this life because we think we should. We just, it's like our basic goodness. We do care about this life. And that makes us ardent about this practice when we're not overwhelmed by the details of life and we can be a little bit more reflective, we start to feel this ardency. I do care, I am interested in the mind because somehow I intuit it's very much part of ending up in states of suffering and coming out of those states of suffering. Instead of locating the causes out there and how you think of me or how you treat me, I see that actually the responsibility for stress and suffering first and foremost is in our own heart and mind. So after the first three, then the Buddha talks about when the mind is constricted, which usually gets translated or understood as meaning without enough energy, and when the mind is scattered. So knowing when there isn't enough energy or when the mind is without energy, and when that's not true, when the mind has too much energy, and when that's not true. So too much energy is restlessness or not restlessness, dullness or not having dullness. So these uh, eight qualities we all know pretty well. Isn't that true? You've seen the wanting mind. Maybe you're not quite as fluent in seeing the not wanting mind. So this can be a real invitation, especially now in the second half of the retreat, to be just as interested in noticing moments of not wanting, a sense of a beautiful, joyful sense of renunciation. So being content with things as they are. And just as fluent seeing anger, uh, not non-anger or loving kindness as you are seeing anger. And for delusion, this is how, one of the ways I understand it, so I'm swapping a story in terms of like what delusion looks like for me, it's like when my mind thinks it knows it's no longer actually interested not actually connecting in a non-conceptual way with the present moment because it trusts its concept of what's happening like I have a mental idea concept this is what's going on for me today like this is the kind of day I'm having so I don't actually need to be intimate connected because this is the kind of day I'm having and then, you know, when, we ha- when we're sort of living through that concept, that idea, then it's like our perception is in allegiance with the concept, not with the truth of the moment. And so we ignore things that don't fit the idea, like I'm depressed today. So I, I don't notice moments of happiness and joy because I'm depressed today. Or if I'm feeling happy, I ignore that heavy feeling in my heart because that doesn't fit my idea. So that's how I catch delusion, is when I think I know how it is, how I'm doing. That's delusion. Because no matter how we think we're doing, that idea, that concept of how I'm doing, how my mind is, that's never the way it is. The concept is never the way it is. One teacher, I forget who it was, said it's like in the same way that a menu is never the same as eating the food. No matter how good the picture is or the description is, it's not the same. In fact, it's wildly different. In the same way, you know, the idea of how I think I'm doing. And, and we do this a lot on retreat, don't we? Like, this is my good day. That was my bad day. Oh, I guess I'm going to have another bad day. But there's still some days left, so maybe I'll have a good day. <laughs> Instead of just sort of living our life moment to moment, and with a real sense of awe and wonder. It's like, I mean, it's amazing how many days we have in one day, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, if we're really honest, how many days have we had? I bet a lot of us have had really low spots today and real high spots and a lot of ordinary spots, and it's not even over yet, (laughs) so we'll have a lot more. And so it's up to us to get a real flavor Like the Buddha uses some descriptive words like the fire of lust, of sense desire, and the grip of aversion. And sometimes, yeah, that that feels like that. When we have a lot of anger, there's a real tightness. And when we have a lot of desire, it's kind of a leaning forward, uh, uh, sort of the promise that's never kept, like if only, we sort of moving forward. And the net of delusion it's sort of that confusion or it's a, it imprisons us. Like when I think this is the kind of day I'm having, it's a net. It's like I'm imprisoned by that idea. I'm no longer alive. In fact, the Buddha says this, it's in the Dhammapada. You know, the heedless, those who have given up on being mindful, are as if already dead. Being heedful, mindful, uh, is the path to the deathless. Being heedless, One is as if already dead. And it's true, like when we have this idea, and we we don't notice it in ourselves, but we do notice it in other people, a kind of sense of them being ossified, like stuck in their ways, because they've defined everything. They defined us, every time we meet them, they're not meeting us, they're meeting their idea of us. Have you had that feeling sometimes when you're with people? And we get that, like we come to IMS, and it's like, we're here, relating to our idea of ims and our idea of what it's like to be on retreat so we have to be careful about getting ossified in that way and that's that delusion Buddha Dasa has another way of talking about these three poisons of greed anger and delusion He says lust is a pulling in anger is a pushing away and delusion is running in circles <laughs> <laughs> Ajahn Das is a famous Thai um, Buddhist monk um, who died maybe 20 or so years ago. And then the second half of this discourse, uh, or the section of the discourse that's on mindfulness of mind, the Buddha's giving us eight other qualities to be aware of, and these eight have a lot to do with the mind settling into a deeper state of stability or even jhana. So a deeper state of concentration. But even though we're doing more of a wisdom practice here, there will be moments for some of you, maybe hopefully all of us to some degree, where our mind naturally settles in. And you'll notice some flavor of these qualities. So I'll just go through them quickly. So the Buddha says, when the mind is enlarged, that's how Ajantani Saro translates it, Some teachers translate that or um, translators translate that as great. So when the mind is great or enlarged, one discerns that the mind is great. And when the mind is narrow, one discerns it's narrow. So one way uh, somebody described this that made sense to me is a great mind and a large mind is a mind that is not imprisoned by its liking and disliking. Now this is a state that's accessible to us i bet you've ventured the mind has moved into these for periods of time into this state where the mind is feels more expanded because it's not obsessing with what it likes and it doesn't like and i'll just give you a little example like if we're sitting and there's something that's irritating us maybe an a tickle or somebody breathing loudly or whatever it might be and the mind could be obsessing with what it likes and doesn't like, right? And that's a very narrow mind. And then you might make peace with that at some point in the middle of the set, like it's just what it is. It's just hearing. It's just that funny tickle sensation in the face. It's just that. And it like a bubble pops, and now all of a sudden the mind is enlarged. It's great. It's exalted in a way in the sense that It's not imprisoned by its habit, its obsessive habit of liking and disliking. So this is like considered in the tradition, one step toward a deeper state of concentration to get some distance from the obsession with liking and disliking. That's a pretty mundane, unhappy state when our mind is caught in its likings and dislikings. You know, we get it like something comes to mind about what happens when we get home, and we can spin for a while, and if we get lucky, we'll, we'll sort of like come up from drowning in it, and we'll look around for a second before we get pulled back in, and we'll realize this is really hard to bear, and then we get pulled back in, <laughs> right? But that's a moment of clarity. It's actually to be appreciated, even though it's really unpleasant to recognize that being obsessed with liking and disliking is unpleasant, it's really good to see that, to acknowledge that clearly until it's gone. So that's the first. And then the next quality we can get to know, and now we're going into deeper states of concentration. So one the uh, when the mind is surpassed, one discerns that it is surpassed. When the mind is unsurpassed, the one, one discerns that it's unsurpassed. So the way I understand this and the way Um, other teachers and translators understand this is, and this is part of, for some of you who've done jhana retreats, you might have gotten this instruction, but when the mind settles into a deeper state of concentration or absorption, then one of the things that naturally can arise in that state is one, how stable it is, but two, just noticing how it could even be better, right? So for example, some of states of concentration we get in, there's a lot of joy. And that joy can be, have sort of a strong movement quality to it, rapturous quality to it. And so the earlier sort of uh, first stages of de- um, concentration have more of that flavor to them. Lots of joy. And uh, so there the mind is in that experience, held in that experience, and whatever wisdom is there, is recognizing this could be a little quieter. You know, a little bit less voltage, a little bit more ah, would be better than the ah, right? So, that mind can be surpassed. So, if we're mindful of the mind and this is what's happening to our mind, then that mindfulness of the mind would recognize this mind can be surpassed. It hasn't settled as deeply as it can settle. It could still settle more. Or, this mind can't settle anymore. This mind is as settled as a mind gets. And then the the next is, the word they use is concentrated. So discern when the mind is concentrated, when it's not concentrated. And here, one way to understand it is, is that deep settledness of mind happening on its own? Or is there some maintenance going on to sustain that deep state of quiet? I don't know if that's what the Buddha meant, but that's, that's what I've read, and somewhat from my own experience. I know the difference between when the mind settles, and part of that experience of settledness, absorption, is that It has its own integrity. It's like gonna happen for as long as it's gonna happen and then it's over when it's over. And so there's nobody doing anything to maintain it. So if there's, if in that moment of mindfulness you observe that the mind, there's some sense of the mind maintaining, doing something to maintain the quiet, then you know this is not a concentrated mind. And when it's all happening on its own, has its own integrity, coherence, and you know, okay, this mind is stable like that. And then the last is liberated, knowing the mind as liberated, meaning free from greed, anger, and delusion, no greed, or not liberated. And this uh, could refer to being fully awake, or it just might mean that Uh, in the deeper, the sort of most refined state of absorption, the mind settles even beyond pleasant and unpleasant. So it's talked about more as a, and you, you will feel this, just even in an imperfectly absorbed mind, you'll notice this flavor of stillness and peace that has more of a, you wouldn't necessarily call it pleasant, it's more cool and peaceful and still, and quiet. It's so quiet that the mind doesn't even care about pleasant or unpleasant. That's why it's so quiet. It's like forgotten its obsession with wanting nice things. It's willing just to be quiet. So you get a taste of the mind free of greed, anger, and delusion when the mind is really concentrated because the defilements, you know, greed, anger, delusion, have profoundly retreated from the mind. So the mind is temporarily free. That's why concentrated states are so helpful and healing to touch into those places. And so that concludes the what to pay attention to, right? So the Buddha says, when we're mindful of the mind, we pay attention to the eight qualities that have to do with being skillful and unskillful, the presence of greed or absence of greed, presence of anger, absence of anger, delusion or non-delusion, sleepiness or not, restlessness or not. And when you're doing concentration practice or when your mind naturally settles into more quiet states, is it enlarged or not enlarged? Still obsessed with liking and disliking or free from that? You know, is it surpassed or unsurpassed? Concentrated, happening on its own, or still doing something to maintain the concentration. Free of greed, anger, and delusion, or the mind still subtly uh, noticing and attracted to pleasant, or not. So, and then after each of the instructions the Buddha gives, there's a passage that's repeated many times in the discourses, 13 times for each meditation, and uh, this is where the Buddha talks about how to practice. Now you, we all have been hearing a lot of this in our instructions and in the Dharma talks already. So I'll just go through it, and it's just gonna be a review of how we pay attention to whatever we're paying attention to. So when we pay attention to the mind, the first thing is to know the mind, in and of itself, to know one of these 16 qualities in and of itself, to know anger, or to know loving kindness in and of itself. Not in terms of our concepts of loving kindness, but what is the direct and immediate experience of loving kindness in the mind? What is that experience? Directly, indirectly, right? Directly mean as a mental quality itself, and indirectly how it affects the body, the feeling tone, and how it's informed by these maps like understanding the hindrances. So that's the first step. Can we, and if you don't like this list of 16 mental qualities, come up with your own, right? Because what matters is that we have a fluency so we can recognize the mental qualities that are there. We can know the mind. That's what's important. So you could, you know, you're one of those simple people, and you could just say skillful mind, unskillful mind. Right, so instead of 16, two qualities, two flavors of mind, skillful mind, unskillful mind. Right, and then for people who like longer lists, you know, you could, Break down aversion, there's fear, there's boredom, there's impatience, there's, you know, so either impatience is there or it's not there. Fear is there or it's not there. So no matter what your list is, can we see these experiences in and of themselves? So if any thought is there, we're just knowing it as a quality of mind. We're not confused by the content of the thought. Oh, this is being known. This is something being known. That's why that can be very useful to stabilize that it's just this being known. And you can name, or you can just use the word this, but the idea is that the attention, the awareness is knowing that, and in knowing that, it's knowing the present moment, the body, the other aspects of the mind. And then the second, so first the Buddha says, knowing the mind in and of itself. Then he says, knowing what is arising and what's passing in the mind, right? Internally, externally, both internally, externally, or directly, indirectly, both directly and indirectly. So now, because we're able to recognize how the mind is in any moment, and we're allowing it, we're not needing it to be different, we're seeing it as it is, then we can start doing the work of insight, vipassana. Because now there can be a continuity and we're noticing that things are coming and going. right? So if we're noticing things are coming and going, that means the mindful awareness is being sustained. It's not just a moment of knowing there's anger, but there's awareness being sustained And so it's seeing what's coming and going. And basically if there's identification with the anger, it's noticing what's getting set in motion, trouble. And if there's not identification, then it's seeing what's getting set in motion, like the abandonment probably. Because if we're not identified, it won't be long before the anger dissipates and maybe even disappears, falls out of the mind. So the Buddha says, first we need to be able to see mental objects, mental experiences in and of themselves, and then we tune into things coming and going. So now this is the dynamic process of mind, an awareness of the dynamic process of mind, and the interdependence, and what's getting set in motion. And this is an interesting quote from tanisaro about because it, it sort of challenges this idea we hear sometimes of non-interfering awareness. And it's a useful instruction, but it's not quite uh, right either, or it's not complete, maybe is a better way of saying it. So he says, in terms of this second stage in practice where we're noticing what's arising, what's ceasing, what's coming and going, he says, this means actively getting engaged and maximizing skillful mental qualities and minimizing unskillful ones. Now, I know, be careful with that because then it's going to seem like, okay, i got to fix this mind, right? But if we're paying attention to what's coming and going, we learn very quickly that me getting in there and fixing things is definitely going to be the cause for getting tight and then judging myself and then having a lot of doubt about whether I know what I'm doing, you know, and then on and on. Hell. So just because we want to learn how to be skillful and learn what's unskillful doesn't mean that we go in with a heavy hand. And the interesting thing we've all been learning is what a powerful intervention it is to see things as they are. Seeing anger and seeing what gets set in motion is a powerful intervention. We may not need to do much more than see clearly and when the mindfulness is strong, that actually is enough. He likens this to just as you learn about eggs by trying to cook with them, gathering experience from your successes and failures and attempting increasingly difficult dishes, right? Now the interesting thing is this understanding leads naturally to the third stage where we begin to understand more and more that the lighter the intervention, the more skillful the intervention, right? And this, is, this describes our whole course in practice. You know, it's all about right effort. And you know, first we're totally oblivious that we have un- unskillful states in the mind. And then we start becoming more sensitive, and we notice the delusion, and we notice the anger, and we notice the greed, and hopefully some of the wholesome qualities as well. But we tend to over grasp, really want to hold on to the nice stuff and definitely want to get rid of the bad stuff, the unpleasant stuff. And it just makes things worse, that reaction. So we, just because we're sensitive, and we learn through trial and error, lighter touch. And the nth degree is mindfulness, this wisdom awareness is... What we trust. So, that last instruction so, the first one is see the mind in and of itself. Then, the second is see what's coming and going, see what's unfolding, seeing what's getting set in motion. Understand it in terms of what's skillful, like is suffering getting set in motion, stress getting set in motion, or is release getting set in motion. And then, the third stage, I really like this translation here. Or one's mindfulness that there is a mind is maintained simply to the extent of knowledge and recollection, and one remains independent, unsustained by, not clinging to anything in the world. Or one's mindfulness that there is a mind is maintained simply to the extent of knowledge and recollection, like holding the present mind in view, keeping the present moment, rather, keeping the present moment in view but not trying to do anything else. So it's, it's basically those moments when mindfulness has its own momentum and we're just letting that wisdom awareness do the work, just trusting it when we can do that. And if when that isn't, there isn't that momentum, then we're back into seeing what's coming and going and seeing what's sort of polluting the mind, like what's weighing down the mind and practicing, seeing that, like framing our awareness around that defilement. Not to get rid of it, but to understand it, right? So the the whole thrust of the practice is understanding, not controlling, understanding the mind. So I'll end with um, a beautiful teaching from Saida Utejaniya. So that little booklet that Kamala had ordered for all of you and was passed out a couple of nights ago, He has a bigger book called Dhamma Everywhere that you can get online and in that book once you're back at home, you can go to the website and you can get your own electronic copy of that book, Dhamma Everywhere. And there's this quote in that book. Because the mind is covered by the defilements, we are unable to see Dhamma or to understand nature as it is. Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is Dhamma. Even defilements become Dhamma, become nature. Nature is arising, knowing is arising, and awareness is arising. Object in mind, object in mind. In nature, there is nobody there. Nature is not us, not them, not other. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever-present and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is always teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. If we can see nature as it really is, the mind is free. So let's just sit for a few seconds, let go of the words.